Well, today we do continue our series in Acts, and so I'll invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 19 this morning. Acts chapter 19, and if you're joining along in the Pew Bibles, that's from page 1115. We really do encourage uh, our whole congregation to read God's Word along with us, and so we love to hear the pages rustling. And we love to see everyone's heads going down as we read God's Word together. We're in Acts chapter 19, and we find Paul now in Ephesus. So Acts chapter 19, and we're going to read from verse 1 through to verse 22. This is God's Word. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and there were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way, and so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him, and they had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and they went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. And when this became known to the Jews and to the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. And when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50 dramagus. And in the way of the word of the Lord, and in, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And after all this had happened, 
Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. And he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Amen. And we thank God for His Word to us. Well, do let's uh, turn our Bibles open to Acts chapter 19. Uh, those of you who have been here for some time and those who have been at membership class recently and will be maybe this afternoon will, will uh, be lightly aware of the story of how uh, this church began, uh, but let me just mention a couple of things about it for the benefit of others. In the mid-19th century, there was only one Presbyterian church in Lurgan. It was uh, where High Street is uh, now. It was High Street Presbyterian Church. Uh, the town was growing at that stage. Uh, industrial Revolution was happening. The uh, textile industry was uh, blossoming. And then something quite remarkable took place in 1859. We know it as the 1859 revival. Just like in Wales in 1904, uh, God moved in a remarkable way. And again, like in Wales, we, we think that something like 100,000 people were converted during that year. And a revival is the name that we give to an unusual and a powerful work of God. Ray Ortland uh, describes it like this, a little quote uh, alongside a picture of Hill Street, if you look at that really carefully, you'll see that there's no tower on the church. Um, uh, the roads are pretty much in the same condition, to be fair, uh, but, but uh, the, the, there's no tower on the church. Uh, the, the tower came a little bit uh, later. But Ray Ortland says, revival uh, is a season in the life of the church when God causes the normal ministry of the gospel to surge forward with extraordinary spiritual power. So, in a sense, it's not that something different is happening. It's that what is happening is compressed and, and moving forward with a, a particular rapidity. Jonathan Edwards spoke about the fact that in a revival, more is done for the kingdom of God in a day than would be normally done in the course of a year. It happened a a little over 150 years ago in Ireland, it's uh, estimated, as I said, that 100,000 people were converted, and Lurgan uh, <clears throat> was certainly affected by it. Let me read you an account of that time by the Presbyterian minister at that time. Uh, on Tuesday evening, he says, the second meeting for united prayer took place in which all denominations were represented. A student of theology addressed it. There were six cases of public conviction, folk believing that uh, God was speaking to them that they needed to repent and get right with the Lord. On their way home, and after reaching it, many were brought to their knees. The next day, the people were giving way in all directions. No meeting had been announced for that evening, but the young people and others assembled voluntarily, filling both the schoolrooms as well as the church, and they continued till two or three o'clock in the morning in singing and in prayer. On Thursday, it was the same. Every pew was a prayer meeting. Some were prostrated under agonizing conviction. Others were rejoicing as having found Jesus. And then later he, he writes <clears throat> in the autumn of that time, I remember one day in the beginning of harvest driving out to see a person in a rural district. No work was being done in the neighborhood. The people were gathered in groups on the public roads, literally walking and leaping and praising God. 
or assembled in their houses engaged in exercises of devotion. No manner of labor was being attended to, though the fields were white to the harvest. The concerns of the soul and eternity were occupying exclusive attention. God had, had just come near in a remarkable way. And it was out of that move of God's Spirit that this congregation was formed just a couple of years later in 1861. Many other churches uh, built and formed in that time and extended and, and renovated and so on. And as we look back over the centuries, we see that, that the history of the church, we see that, that Christ has been building His church. Often that has been a steady, slow growth. We, we think of so many of Jesus' metaphors as he talks about the growth of the kingdom of God. They are agricultural and horticultural me metaphors, plants growing, seeds being sown, and so on. And, and uh, over time, you, you maybe don't see much difference from one day to the next, but over time you see the, the increase. And I heard this week, actually, heard it, we t talk about the explosive growth of, growth of the early church, and that's right, but someone has done the calculation and, and taken the number of Christians that there were, were there at, at, at Pentecost, just a handful, of course, and then the number of Christians that they estimated were in the world in, in 312 AD when Constantine was uh, converted, perhaps, and, and, and uh, declared Christianity the, the official religion of the empire. And, and this person had worked out that 3.5% compound growth produced that figure. So there you are, a real mathematician. Uh, but you think about that, 3.5%, it's not remarkable. A church of 100 members, by the end of the year, has... 103 and a half members, whatever that looks like, and then a few more the next year and a few more the next year. And that sort of growth just over the years produces remarkable increase. The seed is sown, the plants grow, and the harvest comes. That steady growth is hugely important. But there is that time when God draws near, when all of that steadiness is just funneled into a flood, and God works in power. It happened here in 1859. It happened in Wales in 1904. And it happened, it seems, in Ephesus when Paul was there in Acts chapter 19. It's part of his third missionary journey. Ephesus was an important city. It had a population of about a quarter of a million people. The way that they worked that out is if you, you go to Ephesus today, the ruins of Ephesus are tremendous. Uh, uh, you can sit in the great big amphitheater, and, and what they do is they, the, the Romans tended, or the, the, uh, the people in those days tended to create their amphitheaters to cope with 10% of their population, and the amphitheater holds 25,000 people. And so they reckon that it was a population of about a quarter of a million. Uh, Athens, if you like, was the, th the sort of philosophical capital of the, the world or the region. Corinth was the trade capital. Ephesus was the religious capital. There, there was a great temple there, one of the wonders of the ancient world, dedicated to Diana, and uh, people came from all over to, to worship there. Well, there are two things that we see. It's a remarkable chapter in the Bible. Two things we see here. We see that Christ is proclaimed, and we see that God draws near. Christ is proclaimed, and God draws near. We're just going to step our way through it. Paul turns up in Ephesus, and the first thing that we're told about is uh, this encounter with some people who are pretty confused. They're described as disciples in verse 1, you see that. But as the story goes on, it's clear that they are disciples of John the Baptist rather than of Jesus. In other words, they're, it seems they're not yet believers in Jesus yet. 
They've received John's baptism, baptism of repentance. So they'd they repented of their sin. They knew that there was something more coming, that the Messiah was coming, but they, they haven't heard much about him. And Paul tells them about Jesus. They are baptized. Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's a repetition of Pentecost. By the way, a little aside here, some Christians will use this story and, and some others to, to suggest that there are two stages in the Christian life, that you become a Christian, and then there's another stage where something happens to you and you receive the Holy Spirit. But I think we can see here that these people were, were not Christians at all until they met Paul, and their story is unusual and not a pattern that we are to follow. What we see in Acts and in the rest of the New Testament as a whole is that when people become Christians, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives. God comes to dwell with us. It's not a, a two-stage thing. It comes whenever we bow before the Lord Jesus. And, and do uh, ask us something about that if that's something you're not clear about. So Christ is proclaimed, in this case, to the confused. And then we see that Christ is proclaimed as well uh, to the, how could we call these people, the Jews, the familiar, uh, the, the prepared. Uh, Paul goes to the synagogue. He begins to preach there and teach there, and actually he gets a good reception. That wasn't how it was in many of the other cities we've seen. The Jews quickly put him out of the synagogues. But here, he's able to be there for three months. Verse 8, he entered the synagogue, spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. That, that opportunity came to an end, but they had three months of Paul working through the gospel with them. Tremendous opportunity. Eventually, that opportunity comes to an end. Those who are opposed to him uh, put him out of the synagogue. And, and Paul then proclaims the gospel not to the prepared, but to the unprepared, to those unfamiliar with the true God. So Paul left them, it says in verse 9, he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. He does this pretty creative thing. He takes this public lecture theater, and he lectures there every day. One of the, the manuscripts that uh, has a, a little addition that's probably not original, but it is very probably true, and it says that he took the lecture hall from 11 a.m. until 4 p.m. Now, the way that uh, the, the dynamic of city life in, in those cities went, apparently, according to the scholars, was that things started really early at dawn, and then at about 11 o'clock, everybody sort of stopped for a siesta because it was really hot. And then things picked up again in the afternoon. So here was this free slot in the schedule of the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and here was this free slot in people's diaries, and Paul uses that and begins to teach day after day about the Lord Jesus. It's incredibly successful. The Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. In fact, all the Jews and Greeks. So, so Ephesus is this major center. People come in to trade or to do business, whatever it is. They hear about Paul. They go to the lecture hall. Then they go home and they take the news of what they have heard back to their towns and villages. And the whole, familiar becomes fam whole region becomes familiar with what's being said, the word of the Lord. He goes to those who are confused, to those who are prepared, to those who are unprepared, to those who are familiar with basic Christian things and those who are entirely unfamiliar, insiders, outsiders. 
We need to think so carefully, don't we, about how we reach this culture for the gospel. How might we go and not just invite people to come? Christ is proclaimed. It's the bedrock of all that happens in this chapter. But, but not only was there this particular strategy of Paul, there was also power from God because God comes near. That's what Luke goes on to tell us about. There were, there were miracles done through Paul. We see this. We, we ought not to be surprised about this. He is an apostle. He's met the risen Jesus, and, and God enabled the apostles to do particular miracles in order, it seems, to authenticate their message and to underline their authority, and that's what happens here. These cloths, these handkerchiefs, or whatever translation you have, are taken to sick people and, and healings take place. Cloths didn't do that. They weren't magical. God did that. And God was saying by these things, this is my servant. Listen to him. And then as if that was not enough, some of the Jews wanted to get in on the act, and they thought that they could replicate the casting out of demons, which was obviously taking place, in Jesus' name. They tried to do something remarkable. Verse 13, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests, were doing this. One day, the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And they are beaten up by this man. It, it's, it's pretty remarkable, isn't it? The thing that, that strikes me is this insight into the battle that is going on as the gospel is going forward in, in Ephesus. The demon knows about Jesus and about Paul. I've been listening to the screw tape letters recently. I said that. And uh, you, 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 it, it's this imaginative um, insight into the, the demonic world and this battle, as it were, that C.S. Lewis gives us. And you can imagine, as it were, here, the, the, the demonic world in Ephesus getting its morning briefing. Here's how the battle is going. Kingdom of God seems to be going forward. We're really on the back foot here. Jesus is our great enemy, and the servants of Jesus that you need to watch out for are, are particularly Paul. Made me think, do the demons know about Hill Street? Are we a threat to them? Are you a threat to them? Jesus I know. Hill Street I know. If we only knew what was really happening around us day after day. Well, the spiritually beaten up and bleeding and naked sons of Sceva cause quite a stir as they run through the city. And you see what happens, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, they came to, uh, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So now the whole city knows what is happening. The mainstream media have picked it up. Jesus is held in, in high honor. doesn't mean that he's worshipped by all or trusted by all, but he is known and honored. There's awe within the community. 
and, and there's repentance within God's people. The, the, these scrolls that are burned are, are, are books of magic charms. They, they, they are, they are um, Ephesus was, was full of the occult as part of the various worshiping practice that, that were going on. And, and I'm not sure that I'd seen this before, but I, I'd sort of imagined that people became Christians and they sort of, uh, as, as part of their conversion process, they, they, they burned their scrolls. But I'm not sure that that's actually what it's saying. Somewhere I'm sure doing that, but it seems that there were those who were already believers, and what they had done was they had said, well, you know, here's my old scrolls from my old religion, quite valuable. Who knows? I, I might look them up sometime. I'll just put them in the, in the cupboard. I'll, I'll, I'll stick them up on the shelf. I'll, 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 I'll leave them there. Maybe even some were, were trying to live with a, with a foot in both camps. You know, that wouldn't be the first time that God's people have done that, would it? A, 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 bit of, a bit of worship, but not taking God too seriously. A, a, a bit of worship when it suits, a bit of the world when it suits, when it's to her advantage. A sort of a half-hearted, foot in both camps Christianity. And then God comes near. And all of that goes. No, no selling of the scrolls to give a tenth to the church. No. Onto the fire it goes. Because that was wrong. That was a sin. I want nothing more to do with that. God deserves my all. He will have it. How could I have been so foolish as to keep that in the cupboard as if, as if my old way of life was something I might drift back into? There's an absolute public throwing of one's lot in with Christ and His cause. There is a rejection of half-hearted Christianity. God has come near. And this is one of the things that we miss about revival. We think that revival is about conversion. And certainly great numbers of people are converted during times of revival but also, and maybe even first, God's people are revived. The half-heartedness goes. Repentance happens. Divided loyalties are left behind. Relationships are repaired. Marriages are patched up. There's a deep seriousness about what it means to follow Christ. The temperature is turned up amongst God's people. And surely isn't this what we we long for today. I remember as a student reading a book by a man called David Wells, I've quoted it here before, he, he spoke about the problem of the weightlessness of God, you know, that, that, that God's honor and His worship are tied up with the word in the Bible that is the word for weight. God is weighty. He is a, he is a, 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 a being of, of huge importance, of weightiness. And the, the problem, David Wells said, was that God rests too lightly upon the world. And he said also that he rests too lightly upon the church. He said, God now rests all too inconsequentially upon the church. Isn't that what we see sometimes? And then God comes near. And the weight of God is felt 
amongst his people. Maybe you think these are the sorts of things that can only happen in bygone days. John referred in his prayer to what's happening at Asbury College in Kentucky just now. College worship service started 10, 12 days ago. It's just kept going, students turning up, people coming from other areas, and, and in a very undramatic way, just, just being there and praying. And, and it's happened before in that part, particular part of the world. It's now being reported in mainstream media. People are coming to faith, believers deepening their commitment. It's, it's small compared to Wales or 1859, but it looks like God is coming near. Might we want to pray that God would come near to us too? And here's a thought for us. I, I, I think that, that many of us, if we were really asked and we thought it through, I think we know what it would mean for us if the, the temperature was turned up, if, if God came near and, and we felt the, the holy weightiness of God upon us. We, we, we know the things that, that, that we would change. We know what forsaking a divided commitment to Christ would look like. We might be able to imagine the things he would put his finger on. Well, if we know, why wait? Why not say to him, Lord, here I am. You're coming near to me now. And I want to be, I want to be near to you. Christ is proclaimed, and God comes near. Why, why don't we pray? Lord, together we confess that so often you and your ways and your cause are not at the very center of our lives. They're on the edges of our lives, the main flow of our lives revolves around us and our concerns rather than you and yours. Lord, you are God. This should not be. And so, Lord, humbly we pray, and knowing what it may involve for us. Humbly we pray that you will come near. 
that, that, that your weight may be felt upon us, that you will rest upon us, and Lord, not inconsequentially, but powerfully, in, in a transforming way, and all for your glory. Lord, today, if we are not yours, we pray that you will take us. Lord, if we are yours and we, we feel and we know that, that, that in some ways there's a foot in both camps, we, we pray, Lord, that you'll refine us and have us holy. Lord, work in us. In power, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.